stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. And as I said earlier, Mark Chenoweth is not with us this week. Um, So, but I do have my colleague, Russ Ryan, who has just filed a petition for certiorari to the Supreme Court, uh, asking them to take what I think is a very important issue in administrative law and one that allows the administrative agencies like the FTC and the SEC, this is an SEC case, to really um, abuse the people who are before them. Because almost always, I was a criminal defense guy for a while, and um, you kind of know the penalty range. You've got the you've got the guidelines, the sentencing guidelines, and then you have the fines uh, are pretty well uh, laid out, often statutorily, and the range is very well known. But we've got a problem here, Russ. Uh, the SEC doesn't operate with that kind of clarity, it appears. No. Um... In 1990, Congress first gave the commission broad penalty authority, and it set specific statutory caps on the penalties per violation, but did not define what a violation was. So back in the day, um, for a non-fraud violation, the the maximum penalty was set at $5,000. Now, Congress did allow the SEC to adjust those upward for inflation over time, but even now, today, it's about $10,000 for a non-fraud violation. What the SEC does in practice, however, is it takes a violation and it artificially splits it into many different pieces. And in this this case, give us what's going on. Here's This is a perfect example. Well, first, what's the name of it? The name of the case is Murphy against SEC. It comes out of the Ninth Circuit. Our client is a, a fellow named Rick Gennard. Rick was accused only of failing to register with the SEC as a as a securities broker. That's a non-fraud violation. Um, but when it came to the penalty phase, at the very end of the case, the SEC sprung on Rick and the court its theory that this was not just one violation, that you should count a new violation for every turn of the monthly calendar while he was unregistered. And um, let me go through this for a second. So um, you go through a court case, you have discovery, and as in my experience, the SEC won't tell you what it's gonna, what it's gonna hit you with while they're doing the liability, and or they give you some range or something. But, and there's a reason for that, if you want. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I. In my experience, the reason they do that is because once they put a specific dollar demand on the table, if they get substantially less than that, there's a provision of the Equal Access to Justice Act that allows you to recover your fees from that point forward in the litigation. And they're loath to trigger that liability until the very end of the proceeding. And the, the judges should force them. That's why we have discovery. I mean, I, I've been on this for ages because 
you, every other litigant, you know, I was a plaintiff's attorney as well. And if a plaintiff's attorney does not tell the defendant what it wants at the very beginning, the court says, you can't do that. And in fact, we actually did have a case against the SEC, Kara and I, Kara Rollins and I, where they had changed their number six times. And and, and finally, they changed it the seventh time on the stand at this hearing that you're talking about. And the judge says, ah, get out of here. You can't do that anymore. But but here's what happened. So so you have this whole trial about liability. And then after liability, they say, oh, by the way, judge, here's how we're going to do it. Exactly. And he, and he bought it. The judge, the judge did buy it, and as did the Ninth Circuit. Um, it directly conflicts with a D.C. Circuit case called Rappaport against SEC. And what's the difference? What happened? In that case, the SEC, it was an administrative adjudication that went up on administrative review to a court of appeals. The D.C. Circuit, um, the, the SEC in the administrative context had said, for this violation, I can't remember what the violation was, we're going to count it as a new violation every year. So for each of the four or five years that the violation persisted, they counted it as a new violation. And the D.C. Circuit said, wait a minute, that's, that makes no sense and is totally unmoored from the text of the statute. Okay. And the Ninth Circuit, though, said in this case, it was every month? Every month. You know, why not every day? <laughs> so instead of... Um, I think I said earlier, the statutory penalty is less than $10,000 right. at the time for this type of violation, but they multiplied it by 30 times to get a $310,000. Well, is there some, do you have, if I'm a broker dealer and I go to get registered, do I have to re-up every month? Well, they could have charged it as, I suppose, a failure to file the annual report that a broker dealer needs. To annual, right in there. That would be more like the Bidner case that, that you might, you know, I don't know if you talked about it on the show, but um, that was the Supreme Court Bidner case involving um, reports of foreign bank accounts. Um, and the court, in that case, the taxpayer was required to file a new document every year. And so the court was comfortable with the idea that, well, for each year they fa failed to file it, that's a new violation. But in that case, the government wanted to multiply it yet more geometrically by saying each violation was every account that would have been disclosed if the form had been filed properly. And the, the Supreme Court said, no, no go with that. They're not buying that. And, and the, so that is, that is it. Because at least if the statute says, here's something you have to do at a particular time, and a number of those points don't go by, there's at least some logical idea behind it. But here... It's something where you're not registered. You're always not registered, right? right? Why not every second? Right. Every second, I'm in violation. They get out. I mean, exactly. It's it, we we argue that it's it's arbitrary, but worse than that, it's not just this case. It's been this has been going on for at least a decade, more than a decade, where in any given case, the SEC and the court comes up with some different way. Sometimes it's the number of counts in the complaint, the number of investors that were harmed, the number of statutory provisions you violated, all of those at least have some conceivable logic, but they're all arbitrary and inconsistent. And worse yet, as you mentioned, it just puts regulated parties in an impossible position. They do not know the, the potential 
uh, magnitude of their financial exposure when they're undertaking their business affairs, and even more important, when they get investigated and sued and they're making the, the decision whether to settle or to defend themselves, it can't be that you have no idea whether your maximum exposure is $7,500 or you know a million dollars. Right. And as we know, if you settle with the SEC, you have a gag order. So you might willing to be silent if you if they don't charge you a million, but you know, for seventy five hundred you'll shut up. Uh anyway, I, I, I did that for our, our colleague Peggy Little, who's gonna be mad at me. But I, I do think I do think that that is uh, you know, that's not law. You should know beforehand. That's what law is. That's the whole nature of it. Well, the way Mark put it, I think, in the press release, and I think it's a great point, is um this, in effect, shifts the legislative uh, power to set penalties from where it belongs, which is Congress, to the executive branch and the courts, because Congress did set statutory limits, but the SEC and the courts largely just ignore them and because they can always just cut it, cut the violation into more pieces. Thing. And override the statutory maximum, right? And why would Congress make a five thousand dollar limit if it if it if it was this sort of thing, or it's a limitless? So the the last thing is why, and I think we can discuss this a little bit um, in a petition for certiorari. You don't just argue; uh, you always argue that whatever was done below was terrible. And uh, but the court, the Supreme Court's view is is that uh, there's a lot of terrible things that we allow to go on forever. But uh, we take certain kind of things. So what are the type of arguments the petition makes for why they should take this case other than, you know, uh, our client has been badly hurt by it? Because that butters no parsnips with those guys. No, I'm good. That's it's a great point. But the way we've pitched this case, which I think is accurate, it's hugely important because this is just a single example of a chaos that's prevails among the lower courts these days. It's not even, it goes well beyond a circuit split. It's just every case is ad hoc. And in every case, the SEC and the courts come up with some other way to count the number of violations. And so penalties are A, unpredictable. They're inconsistent for similarly situated offenders. And there's just, we have to bring some discipline to this. We have to more of these penalties to the statutory caps that were set by Congress. There's just, there's no consistency or predictability on SEC penalties. And um, and you said, you've already pointed out a D.C. circuit split, and you've, and you've pointed out with the Ninth Circuit. Um, are there any other circuits that weighed in one way or another? Well, various circuits and district courts have applied or upheld other types of counting, but on the specific issue of using a unit of time as the multiplier, um, I'd say it's the Rappaport case is the main circuit's got on this. But yeah. So uh, if anyone out there would like to join us with an amicus brief and help us out here, what's the timing on that? Uh, those briefs would be due July 27th. You'd have to notify the government of your intent by July 17th. But certainly reach out to me. I'd be happy to hear from anybody who wants to support this important case. 
All right, that's good. And you can always reach us here at NCLA. Uh, and and uh, Russ, thanks for coming. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's late June, and the Supreme Court uh, is uh, unburdening itself of its views at a furious pace, and uh, there's a lot of controversial cases out there, but I want to talk about one that I don't think is that controversial. It is uh, with some of my friends, but I, but there was the reason I bring it up, um, it's, it's more uh, versus Harper, and this case uh, came out on June 27th. And um, it, this is a case whereby uh, the um, independent state legislature theory was being tested. And there was all kinds of statements in the press and statements by people uh, in politics that this was going to destroy the world and upend everything. And the reason I discuss this uh, case is because it's not an administrative law case, but it is. It does, it does affect mootness. And when we bring administrative law cases, the government loves and and uh, Braden Bosick of uh, always always says this: it's ripeness, mootness, uh, uh, non-justiciability, um, all standing. You know, they never want to get to the merits, and and mootness is one of the ways they do this. Um, I, I think that um, I think that this case is a very good example for anyone out there who sets their hair on fire every time the court takes a case that and has a parade of horribles and worst case situations. Uh, I think I would direct them to uh, Morby Harper and all of the sturm and drang that occurred when the case was taken um, and then wh- what it what it actually results in. Um, and then I'll, I'll discuss mootness a little bit. But um, to remind everybody, this is a case. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of politics in this case, a lot um, of all different kinds from all different angles. This is North Carolina, which is a state uh, in transition. A lot of people are moving there and it, and it goes back and forth and has like Democratic governors and Republican House. And, and when they uh, do their district lines... Uh, the Republicans drew the district lines, but then this, they have elected judiciary, and the elected judiciary uh, was was uh, captured by the Democrats, and that elected judiciary said that last year the Supreme Court said that um, political gerrymandering was non-justiciable. There it is. Uh, that that it's not the sort of thing that you can determine in courts. It should be determined by the legislatures. Um, and so political gerrymandering in federal court, uh, for federal cases, you, you, it's, it's a dead letter for now. So, um, but in state courts, everyone has a state constitution. And I urge all you lawyers out there to read your state constitutions. Um, I, it, it, it's, uh, 
it, it's very profitable it, if you are um, practicing in a state that you've read that constitution, but that's what state legislatures are bound by, and that's what those courts are bound by. And when it gets to the Supreme Court of a state, they get to say whether or not uh, political gerrymandering is allowed by the Constitution or is justiciable. And lo and behold, the newly uh, uh, elected uh, Democratic justices of North Carolina said, yes, oh, political gerrymandering. That's been in the, in the outlawed by the North Carolina Constitution. It's not us. And um, so they struck down all the district lines. Well, in the meantime, that, uh, that view, that, that order of the Supreme Court was the petition for certiorari was brought to the Supreme Court. And while, while they were considering this, the good people of North Carolina determined that they didn't like the majority uh, Democrat uh, Supreme Court, so they put in a majority Republican Supreme Court. Um, now, all this, I think, is supposed to be nonpartisan, but we've, we've seen that... Um, Lately, it's been harder and harder to have those type of elections. But in any event, um, so the the new Supreme Court took the ca- took the case and said, you know what, it is non-justiciable. You can't. Uh, the North Carolina Supreme uh, the Constitution doesn't say that. So they then said, you know, you you can draw the district lines how you like. But the old district lines were still struck down by that old by, by that previous case. Um, and I'm getting all this from John Roberts. John Roberts wrote the opinion. Um, so this is, it's in the syllabus, but it's also, uh, he talks about it. So uh, when the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, struck down uh, the ruling of the previous court, many observers, that when people say many observers, they mean they, mean they did. And I mean that too. I thought they were going to dismiss this on mootness. So many observers... Uh, thought that they'd get rid of it by mootness, um, but they didn't. And um, what they said was that because the judgment affected the parties, that the, the district lines were still struck, that they they did have uh, something that they could they could say was not moot. That they they used a statute that says if you can change the judgment, it's not moot. I think it's fifteen twenty seven. So the court took it. And what did they decide? Well, did they did they say that the state legislature is has plenary power over redistricting without regard to any other law and, and, and review? No, they didn't say that. What they said was, and this this was the theory, um, what I'll call the strong uh, independent state legislature theory, which is that because the Constitution says the state legislatures shall uh, do election law that um, there's, there's no part for the judiciary or anyone else. Um, and so people were very worried that this was going to allow state legislatures to, uh, to uh, change the election results from what the people had voted for. That's kind of the fear. Um, well, what the court said, and, and uh, I, I will probably get pushback on this uh, from, from those who are very strong on this issue, but what they said is, well, wait a minute. It, just like anything else, the state legislature is bound by the Constitution, and we haven't gotten rid of Marbury versus Madison. And Marbury versus Madison said there's judicial review, but it doesn't come from nowhere. It, judicial review is also in all the states. That's where. So Roberts took this, and I think it's very important that Roberts took this because it, it, any of you out there, um, you know, uh, my friend Elia Shapiro has a 
has a shirt with all the uh, so-called conservative justice on it, except Roberts. And I, and I said, where's Roberts? And, and he tweeted back, exactly. But uh, I think what Roberts does here uh, is, uh, first of all, it's correct. It, it's very unusual, very unusual in American law that one branch gets to do something that is absolutely untouchable. And those things are usually pretty clear. And here, because the, the Constitution said the state legislature, well, some, uh, you know, if the, if the Constitution of, this, of, the, of the state gives a certain power uh, over elections to a different body, uh, you know, what governs? So usually it's the state uh, so far anyway. Um, but but what, I, what I think about this opinion and what's interesting about it is Roberts went out of his way to not find mootness by saying that that judgment hadn't been overturned, which is very loyally because nothing in the real world changes because of this uh, opinion. Um, and he got everyone to go get on board ex except for um, Thomas and uh, Gorsuch and Alito. And what, what's going on here? What, why is he doing this? Because he also is one of these appellate guys. Um, he's always been an appellate guy. And you know what appellate guys love doing? They love knocking things out on mootness. Um, they, if they cannot reach it, they won't reach it. So why, why is the uh, Thomas view not the view of the court? And, and Alito also is another guy who doesn't like to prematurely take the case. And here's what I think is going on here. I think there's a very loyally jesuitical case that the, it isn't moot because of the judgment rule. And I don't know that that would always prevail. Um, I don't have much disagreement with the majority opinions to the extent, I've only read it once though, uh, it, you really don't get a full, uh, uh, but it's, it's brand new, so forgive me, but you really don't get a full flavor for a Supreme Court opinion until you've read it a couple of times. Um, so what I did read, I, I agreed with, but I think um, and I have a very, he talks about Marbury versus Madison. So he's going way back. He's saying, this is not some, this would be decided this way at any point in our history. This is not something that is just being done for politics. That's really the message here. And he's saying, and it makes sense. You can't have state legislatures unbound by the law. Everybody's got to be bound by the law. That's very judicial. Um, and he's not going to weaken judicial review. He's a He's, he's, he's the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Everybody looks back to Marshall, you know, the original justices, and even John Jett, that's not who they look back to. They all look back to Marshall. They all look back to Marbury. Um, and so he's not going to weaken that power. Uh, at, and he doesn't see any logical force to the, to the strong independent state judiciary. But what does he also say? And I think this was a little swipe at the, uh, at the North Carolina majority. He says, but you know who else is bound by the Constitution? And you know who else is bound by this? The Supreme Court of North Carolina. The Supreme Court of North Carolina can't make everything up about law and then think the federal government's not going to have any, any review. So if the state of, of North Carolina Supreme Court, which is a state uh, court, does something interpreting North Carolina law that produces federal law, he says we can we can overrule that. We can look at that because we are the you know masters of federal law. And then he discusses and cites the case that was never going to be precedential, and that is the Voldemort of election law, Bush v. Gore. And I saw Bush v. Gore, and I was like, whoa. Well, I think what 
what Roberts is saying is, is that Bush v. Gore was taken because the Florida Supreme Court was was traducing and, and undermining federal election law. I think that's his implication here. And um, and so this is a very interesting case. He didn't find mootness. The minority uh, says this is moot. We shouldn't have taken this. But I am very happy that they took this because this theory is not lying around there like Chekhov's gun for the next uh, contested election we have in this country. So uh, interesting opinion. Uh, and it cites Bush v. Gore. So I, I take a look at it and we'll see you next time.